Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Screen Talk. I'm Eric Cohn, the Deputy Editor-in-Chief Film Critic for IndieWire, and I'm here with my friendly sparring partner, Ann Thompson, from Thompson and Hollywood, and Ann, I'm not totally sure, but I think the Oscars happened last weekend, and we're all in one piece, and, and the world is still spinning as, as usual. It's a little you surreal. You were my handsome date. I had That's a wonderful right. time. We went to the Oscars together, so it was a real thing, and there's photographic evidence of it. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was great. We, uh, we had a busy weekend, uh, going to various events and then going to the Spirit Awards and then going to the Oscars themselves. And I have to say what was really interesting to me about going this time after, after attending the ceremony for the first time last year, uh, was the extent to which a lot of it felt familiar. Uh, you know, you kind of get a sense for what the red carpet is like and what it's like to be in there. And then you're just sort of watching the show and then that sort of extended to the show itself. I mean, in spite of the fact that, you know, people said this was a really close race and we weren't totally sure where a lot of things were going to go, by the end of the night, a lot of it seemed like it was less surprising than expected, wouldn't you say? I, I know what you mean. I mean, one of the things that was making me crazy was that I was sitting there and a little voice in my head would tell me what the winner was in some of these categories where I didn't know enough to pick the right winner <laughs> at the time. I did bad. I have years where I don't do well on my Oscar pool. Sometimes I'm on it. Sometimes I'm really good and I'm very calculating and unemotional and I, I can figure it out from the signs. But and to be clear, what, what, was your score, this year. what was your score this time? I'm not telling you how bad it was. My The people who followed me... Um, you know what it's like? It's like, it, you know, compared to the regular population, I'm sure, you know, picking most of them, you know, except for six or seven is not so bad, but it's pretty bad if you're a professional like me. <laughs> so I was upset. But but the thing is, um, it just, you know, Birdman really was the one that the Academy loved and it became very obvious that they identified with it. They felt uh, they understood it. And the the acting branch, which is so big and so massive and dominates, really did call the, you know, call call the shots on that one. And, and the other thing is, I mean, it just seemed like the way in which there was a certain enthusiasm for this movie matched the kind of enthusiasm in award season that drives a movie towards best picture. That there was something polished and energizing about this movie, whereas Boyhood was just not a movie that excited people in the same sort of immediate way in spite of the fact it that doesn't have the crafts it doesn't have the bells and whistles even if we recognize what a stunt it was how brave Linklater was 
you know, in the end, with a little tiny indie, and it was the first one ever pushed by IFC, it, it ended up being um, the movie that got won, you know, Patricia Arquette. And, and I didn't expect that. I really didn't expect that. I thought Whiplash would be the one that got won for J.K. Simmons. And in fact, they went on to win two more. And uh, that, that actually, support, you know, even though I knew it was very popular, even Whiplash had more craft elements than Boyhood did. Even well, maybe, I thought Boyhood uh, would win editing. And I mean, didn't. I would say, yeah, for editing, that was an interesting one. I mean, certainly Sony Pictures Classics did Whiplash, IFC, not as big a spender or, or as experienced in the awards game. But outside of that, I would also say that, you know, with, with Whiplash's editing, you know, the, the craft is, is very much on the surface, which is not a knock. But it's that that you know that final sequence is like you're, you're looking at it, you're seeing yeah. that. Whereas Boyhood, which Whereas I, Boyhood I, was invisible, all invisible. of its graces, absolutely it, correct, incredibly well done. I mean, I just Boyhood, I love so much because you know just revisiting it on my flight home on a tiny little airplane screen, I realized that it, it even works on that scale to some degree because there's something about being ab- absorbed by the world of Boyhood. That I find to be so so fascinating, so so wonderful, and also something that really opens itself up to repeat viewings in a way that, even though I enjoy Birdman, I don't think it necessarily does. And so, no, you know, I love Birdman too, and I, I I mean, it was these are both my favorite movies of the year, so I'm really not complaining. But I think what happened with Boyhood is that even though you could be reminded of the emotions that it generated, it was also a movie that many people caught up with late. And it was overhyped to a degree. And so people would sort of go, show me the money. And then they would go, oh, is that it? You know, which was really too bad on that one. So really let's, too let's bad. run through some of the other categories because a couple of your longtime Oscar talk listeners said that you and Chris Tapley used to do the recording right after the Oscars to kind of get into it. And since we've had some time to process this stuff, I feel like we owe our listeners to kind of dig into to what happened here. So in terms of the other top categories, you had Best Actor with Eddie Redmayne, which we had been saying Keaton, 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 and then Redmayne was sort of maybe sneaking up in there. No, no, it- no, 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 no. Redmayne was clearly the front runner because he won SAG and the BAFTA. And you could argue that BAFTA was Brits and, you know, they would be different. But, but who did you in- have down? I had no I I voted for Keaton because I thought that that could happen because of the strength mm-hmm. of the support for Birdman which was palpable and obvious. Right, right. And I'm sure it was close. But if, you know, the statistics show that in the last 10 years the person who's won SAG wins the Oscar. This is a, 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 what I recognized going in was that I was picking against the tea leaves in many categories. Mm-hmm. I was just insisting on going another way, which is you do that at your peril. And also to, you know, kind of push your own agenda on some level. I mean, look, it's, if, if it could have happened, yeah, it could you know, have happened. He, but here's the thing. He was, it would have been his last, in a weird way, the statistics, again, you know, we talked about this, the, the idea that you're an older actor, it's harder, you know, to get another role like that. Keaton is unlikely to have another shot at an Oscar, whether, whereas Redmayne, who's already, his publicists have already put out the pictures of him in The Danish Girl looking fabulous, <laughs> you know, fabulous, you know, yet another possibility for him to be in Oscar contention next year. 
Sure. I mean, and you know, he's a young guy, so there's going to be that's going to be something we're probably going to hear. about. No, we're going to see. We're going to be hearing from Redmond for a long time. But what he did was what Marion Cotillard did the year that she won um, for La Vie en Rose, playing Edith Piaf. He worked the room. He introduced himself in some ways uh, to the Hollywood community, and he went to all those events and all those. uh, People tell you, you know, that if you that they love those one-on-one events where they can actually get to meet these people and be charmed by them. And he charmed everybody. Well, you know, and that's I thought, why he won. I thought Keaton had plenty of charm, but maybe Keaton's charm was more familiar to people on some level. And perhaps that didn't You know, bottom him. line, he's probably still perceived as a comedian on some level. I have to and say the, the end, saddest moment the drama of the of, of, of the twisted degree of difficulty. They just fall for it every time. The, the saddest moment voters. of the night for me was not boyhood losing, even though I wanted to, because that felt kind of inevitable. And also just the fact that it was part of that conversation was an, on, a, on a certain level, just a victory in and of itself. It was when Inuritu won for the third time and gave Keaton a tiny moment at the microphone. And that was all, lovely. But it also felt sort of like, he didn't know what to say at that point. He had he, he had already given his speeches. He didn't yeah. have any speeches left. Exactly. So I thought that was it. Was it was it was interesting. I mean, I, I can only imagine because you know encountering people who lose moments after they lose, and you see the kind of immediacy of the, of, of how sad they become. Just what sort of psychological process he was going through in that moment. I thought that was just really fascinating to see it come to a close, you know, and, and compare, compared to, say, um, Steve McQueen last year after their speech when he jumped, like, 10 feet in the air or something as they walked off stage, you know, like, forget well, all this, of, we're done. By the way, one of the things I loved about, we, you and I had pretty good seats. We were up in the mezzanine, so we were looking right over the stage. And when I watched it again on television, I was struck by, you know, one of the things that happened, I liked the opening number, by the way, uh, one of the things that happened, you could see how uh, precisely uh, Neil Patrick Harris had to stand in front of that screen that was right. coming down inches behind him. Oh, yeah. And, and, the stage and there's another phenomenal. place where the floor descended and he went down when they went to clips and then he came back up again. There are sections where they're showing you video, pre-video, like when he's in his skivvies, most of that has been shot before he's standing on the side of the stage and then comes back on for the live portion. Right. And we could see all of that. That was fun. Right. No, I mean, the, when you're in the room, they dim these big screens that carry the live telecast for certain things. Also during the mu- other musical numbers, I mean, I, I went back and I watched certain things and it was really interesting to compare how they played on TV versus in the room, you know, the that terrific performance by Common of, of Glory, you know, just a minute or two before they actually won the Oscar for original song, I thought was so great because, you know, we could see the scale of that thing. And the know? chorus in the house live right. made sort an of, enormous difference. It just sent yeah. the little hairs up on your neck. Really incredible. And, and Everything is Awesome was sort of the other end of the spectrum. It was just like... That looked really bad <laughs> from where we were sitting. It looked pretty on bad on television, too. I mean, but it was just sort of like Batman was jumping up and down the center there for a good minute or so <laughs> while the cameras <laughs> looked elsewhere. So, I mean, all that stuff is really fascinating, though, because you do see sort of this contrast between how the entire Oscar season fervor is sort of constructed in one way, and then there's a bigger story just sort of right outside the frame. I mean, in some ways, it's a nice metaphor for that. Other things that were less surprising were uh, Juliet Moore for Still Alice. I mean, I don't think anybody expected any kind of upset there, even in the slightest. 
That was maybe the most definite one. Uh, Inuritu winning Best Director. Some people were saying maybe it was going to be Linkletter. I remember we were talking after The Spirits uh, when Linkletter won Best Director and uh, Birdman won Best Picture. I thought this could be the same, but yeah. I never did believe that. I always believed, no matter what, that Inuritu would win Director. I just knew that. I was right. But um, I was wrong that it was going to split with Boyhood for picture. It's so what happens is that after you see what happens, you see how wrong you were and why it went the other way. But you can't necessarily see it ahead of time. But what I will say to you, Eric, is that we should have done this right after, because now that it's Friday, the entire world does not give a shit about this. It is done. It is over. It is dead. It is as dormant and and old as it could possibly be. And I've it's not a, it's like me in my own life. I've like erased it all. It's like I don't care anymore. It's gone. It's ephemeral. It is disappeared. And I know better because I've been doing this for so many years that that you can't sustain it after a day or two it's just it's i was reading the entertainment weekly where they had all the reporting behind the scenes and i was sort of curious about that um little details that i might have missed you know that they were able to catch behind you know backstage or whatever but honestly it's it's so interesting how how quickly it all disappears it after disappears. all that well, effort and you know, energy i think that's that's uh, you know by design in a lot of ways i mean when you leave the oscars uh, you know, after that ceremony, it's it's dark outside, and there's just sort of random people milling about here and there. You know, this year it was raining. It really just kind of feels like, okay, thanks for coming. You know, it's just sort of it moves along, and in well, six months or less, so we're going to be talking about the next. Fun. Yeah, the parties are fun. I mean, I I wrote a piece about going to hang out with the Boyhood people afterwards, and I went to the Sunset Marquee, which was where they were. They had a viewing party for IFC, and it was interesting to hear all these people who were sort of disinterested in going to the parties because it's only really fun if you have something to celebrate or or, or you want to be around the people who won, um, which they obviously didn't. But then later on at that Fox Searchlight party, you know, it was interesting to see Inuritu being just mobbed by hundreds of people who wanted a photo with him in his Oscar, you know, it's which true. is... It's true. It happens every year. One, one thing that I got to do was go to the Governor's Ball, and one of the places to hang at the Governor's Ball, after you pass these incredibly ornate tables of chocolate and uh, piled seafood and all the stuff that they do. I mean, it's an amazing, you know, the, the, the salmon in the shape of an Oscar, you know, the Wolfgang Puck stuff. But in the corner, there's a place where they engrave the winner's Oscars, and they all have to go there and, and get that done. Um, and later in the evening, it was in Aritu uh, going in there, and I, could, I was standing right next to him, and he was dripping with sweat and obviously just exhausted, even at that moment having gone through all the gauntlet of the press and everything. And he took a breather uh, before he went off again into the night to go to the party that we ended up the night at. And the other thing that was fun was that Ryan Latanzio was going to the Oscars for the, the second time. He had been on the red carpet last year in the pen with the press. And then, uh, this year he was doing my usual role, which is the backstage, uh, interview room. 
And uh, for the first time in IndieWire, staffer Nigel Smith was at the Oscars co- uh, covering uh, from from the uh, from the red carpet, and then he went backstage also. And then the two, so the two of them had been in this sort of adrenaline kind of. We were more relaxed. We were, we were coasting along, <laughs> but they were they were writing the stories that that had to go up that night and and uh, covering you know running the IndieWire site. The uh, Ryan uh, uh, Nigel was, and then. The two of them ended up at that box party, and they saw me, and we all just sort of hugged, and that was a great moment because they had done so well, and I was very proud of them. Well, I have to say, I mean, everything went off without a hitch in that respect. I mean, I'm really happy to see that we can process awards season the same way anybody else can, and I would disagree with you, Anne, I mean, that nobody gives a shit because the, the, the truth is, you know, there's so much to pick apart about what happened at the Oscars, but more than that... It it was a pretty good representation of the the kind of spectrum of movies that were released last year. And what I think is really interesting about it is that you it, mean the best movies that were released last year, and the best independent yes. movies that were released last year, because there was really only one big studio movie in contention. Yeah, it was a pretty good overview of of the year and quality. That's not to say that all my favorite movies were in there, but to see Ida win, to see Patricia Arquette with that amazing speech, I mean, there was a pretty good representation of the things that we got excited about. I was even happy to see Interstellar win some visual effects awards. I know some people weren't totally sure that one was going to happen. I mean, Grand Budapest Hotel did really well. I love Grand Budapest Hotel. I'm not going to start... Four Oscars! I'm not going to stop talking about that movie anytime soon, or or for that matter, am I going to stop talking talking about boyhood to well, see Laura Poitras win. I mean, that, that was a great If we're still one. doing this podcast next year, we should do it right away. Okay, that's a promise for now, but, um, uh, you know, we'll see how the night goes. <laughs> so what have you been doing? You went back home? I'm back. I went to uh, straight home uh, on Monday, and I got my bearings, uh, we are currently preparing for South by Southwest, which is just around the corner and, uh, not a whole lot else. You know, it's, it's a sort of a quieter time, which frankly, I, I welcome the, this right now because it's, it's a good time to kind of catch up and figure out what just happened, you know, because once South by's here, we're right around the corner from Cannes, which means that we're kind of barreling straight through into the summer and um, by the end of the summer, it's award season again. So it's closer than any of us ever can uh, prepare ourselves to realize. But, uh, you know, in some ways, that's actually exciting. I mean, there's a lot of stuff to look forward to. I mean, don't you think, you know, we're already sort of singling out some titles for the year that are that look very promising, whether or not they're award season contenders. You know, that's a, that's a harder thing to say. But it, well, but it some of say. them were introduced at... Um uh, Sundance, obviously. So you have things like Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, which may or may not be Oscar fodder, in my humble opinion. Probably not, no. And then uh, Brooklyn, you know, which is which is possible. Um, but there's also something like um, Todd Haynes's Carol, which yes. will finally get shown. Or That's been in production for a while. It sounds long like delayed. And then there's the Tar- Tarantino, The Hateful Eight which uh, I cannot wait to see. There's Inaritu's current production of, of The Revenant, which could be uh, maybe an action film, but it could, be, it could rise to another uh, level, like Tarantino sometimes does. 
Yeah, and there's uh, there's even another Richard Linkletter movie, That's What I'm Talking About, which he's doing for Annapurna, which is supposedly going to arrive on the fall circuit. So there's all kinds of stuff to look forward to, you know, in that respect. Um, and, we'll, you know, we don't even know the can lineup yet, which will obviously change all kinds of different expectations. I mean, look, there's going to be another Woody Allen movie. Anything can happen. But, yeah, there's uh, also, as we mentioned, The Danish Girl, and there's Southpaw, which is Jake Gyllenhaal transforming himself in a sort of uh, Robert De Niro kind of fighting movie kind of way, which we'll see. And there's 45 Years, which was uh, debuted at Berlin, which I cannot wait to see. Yeah, I love that. Director it's a, of Weekend. You know, what, they, what the industry types might call a smaller movie, but it's some really remarkable performances and Charlotte Rampling, in particular, I think is really outstanding. Thomas Vinterberg's Far From the Maddening Crowd, a Victorian uh, drama of sorts, is you know something you might expect to see at Cannes. It's got Carrie Mulligan in it and uh, Matthias Schoenartz. And um, it's just, you know, his, his last movie, The Hunt, I thought was quite strong. So it, that, that is potential Absolutely. And there's as well. David O. Russell's Joy and Steven Spielberg's uh, St. James Place. Exactly. Uh, which could enter the conversation. I don't know about... Steve Jobs, the Danny Boyle movie, the controversial, uh, you know, subject of many uh, hacked emails. <laughs> Which is almost appropriate in a way for, for a movie like that. So who knows, you know. I have to say, though, as much as people rag on Oscar season for, you know, getting away from the conversation about movies that matter, I, I feel like on some ways it actually smuggles the conversation about movies that matter to the largest possible audience. And even if there was a, you know, a huge drop off and viewers for the, the ceremony, there was, there were simply weren't enough big movies. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, it's, that's better exposure for a lot of these movies than we're going to see at any other time of the year. I mean, it just, well, that's why I defend the Oscars and I defend the right of the Oscar voters to go their own, their own idiosyncratic, way i mean they're not thinking about box office they're not trying to please it's not the people's choice awards it's it's the oscars that's the point it's supposed to be the tiffany uh universe i just wish that they had given neil patrick harris better material honestly no we 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 hope for improvement next year yeah absolutely i'm sure he'll learn he had to learn how to play to that room it was clear to me that he didn't get it yet I don't and know. Do you think will. it was his fault? I felt like there's somebody in the right. It's a combination because Ellen was so adept. Well, at, you know, at, at my favorite making bit, them feel part of it. My yeah, that's true. I mean, my favorite bit from the Ellen thing was uh, the pizza stunt, which you know was kind of impromptu. Or the in selfie. A way. But Same you know, thing. I was talking to some of the bartenders in the Dolby Theater, and a lot of them are actors and stuff. And you saw that like sort of legion of valet people who look like they're out of <laughs> Grand Budapest Hotel who who let us out when we got on the carpet. I mean, they should talk to those people and like kind of turn one of them into a celebrity for a night. You know, like, there's so much room for kind of being creative with the insanity of that scene that I feel like they didn't quite tap into. I love well, that the, the whole magic globes. thing didn't work. No, no, But, you know, Neil Patrick Harris is a smart cookie, and, and I think they may have um, made a mistake putting a, a, a rookie host because it's not the same as the Tonys or the Emmys. The, the, that group of people in that theater, that is, that's a different world. And then, and then the, uh, it's the order of difficulty is very high. And then, and then they had new, a, a, a new lead writer, I believe. So that, that, that was perhaps a mistake, but uh, they'll figure it out for next year. I'm sure they'll figure it out. 
Right. Well, so in, in terms of, of things that, that are happening next year, uh, one, one thing that, that um, you know, this uh, telecast had that, that's, you know, always a part of it is the In Memoriam uh, tribute, which, uh, you know, it's always tough to see, you know, who does or doesn't make the cut and how that informs different kind of perceptions about what this thing is meant to do. I mean, people were freaking out that Joan Rivers wasn't in there. Now, Leonard Nimoy has passed away, and so one assumes that he'll make the cut next year but it's, there were it's plenty just... of of leonard nimoy movies you know and, and and star trek movies i think the the issue with joan rivers was that she was perceived very much as a television emmy entity and um that's how the academy makes those decisions it's it's curious i mean they also didn't have bruce sanofsky who was the co-director of paradise lost and its sequels the third of which was was nominated for an oscar just a couple of years ago and he died on a saturday uh, but you know, Alan. That was Renee, a little too late. Yeah, yeah. Alan Renee died, the, I believe, on Oscar Eve uh, uh, last year, and he was in this year's montage. So it's a it's a very delicate and inexact science. But um, speaking of Leonard Nimoy, we should we should dig into that a little bit because the news of his passing came out just a couple hours before we we started recording today. And um, you identify as a Trekkie, so. What is this uh, moment I think mean like many baby boomers, I basically, you know, watched that show when it first came out and as a kid. And um, but then it became it wasn't a hit. People don't remember that. It really wasn't. And it only lasted for three seasons. And yet it lived on in syndication. And that's why so many people, so many people over many, many years watched those characters, loved those characters, could reference so many of the specific episodes, know what a tribble is, know what the Vulcan salute is, know that he says, live long and prosper. And even to this day on his Twitter account, he would sign off with that L-L-A-P, you know. And, and, right. and so that's, that's um, you know, this is iconic cultural stuff. And he will never, you know, he really lived in the culture and will be, you know, will never be forgotten. He was an icon, but let me, let me ask you this. Do you think of him as an actor? I do. I think he. I think he created that character, and I think he inhabited it for a long time. Came back in the movies. He directed two of the movies, right. not the best ones. Um, he came back in the J.J. Abrams uh, movies um, as as Spock Prime, and um, you know, I think he had to come to terms with the fact that this one character would dominate his whole career, and, and it just was one of those things that was meant to be. It's interesting. It's almost like a Birdman type of situation in some level, except that in, unlike Michael Keaton's character in that movie, I mean, he really did embrace that legacy. And, you know, people tend to forget that Star Trek wasn't an overnight hit, hit that these people really were kind of, you know, they became sort of cult figures and then the show's popularity grew with time. And so in some ways, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those situations where somebody discovers that they can do one thing really well and they just continue to kind of develop it. And so what I would say is, you know, based on my own viewing and, and readings of the Star Trek world is that he's the, he's the best character in that world. And to some degree, it's because you see the the continuing degree of commitment that he brought to this role. And it, it grew richer with time. And, you know, he was still acting well in that in that J.J. Abrams uh, Star Trek movie. Yeah, he was fine. I mean, he knew what he had to do. I mean, the thing, I think what's great about um, Star Trek is that it was the dynamic between Cox, uh, Captain Kirk and Spock that it was a, a kind of a bromantic thing, but it was the volatile, you know, cocky, you know, masculine 
you know, uh, captain, you know, the alpha male, you know, who would go off and, and the, lo- the womanizer, the lover, and then, uh, you know, the guy who would do these brash, you know, incredibly brave, uh, make these decisions and then take risks on behalf of the enterprise and the crew. And then he, you, you had the logical, you know, the Spock, you know, the, the, the ballast. And those two things, who still had to fight with his own human nature, those yeah. two things made it work. Um, and, and that's what made it interesting. I will say also on, on a personal note, um, you know, I, I would not say that I'm a diehard Trekkie. I've always had a lot of respect for the show. Uh, but one thing that I remember recognizing Spock as as, as a kid being aware of the character was that he was sort of like a, a Jewish hero, which you didn't really see in a lot of pop culture. Not that, you know, this alien character was supposed to be Jewish. but the He was li- also a mixed race hero. Well, he was an outsider hero. But more specifically, the live long and prosper gesture, the split fingers thing, was actually something that Nimoy drew from his synagogue because... Uh, it's what the uh, the Kohanes, a member of a certain Jewish tribe, do as a gesture uh, in synagogue. It's it's something that goes back thousands of years. Uh, so when I was growing up, you know, I would go with, on the high holidays with my family, and uh, there was this part of the ceremony where the Kohanes would go to the front of the synagogue and, and recite this prayer, and they would cover their faces and hold their hands up and do the live long and prosper gesture. <laughs> and we weren't supposed to look directly at them because the tradition was that they were channeling the, the spirit of God. And, you know, as anybody who's seen Ra- the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark knows, if you see that face, you know, terrible things can happen. But I peeked. I didn't really care and, and saw that. And then, you know, seeing that reflected in, in that in what, you know, Spock's character was doing, it felt like, okay, you know, this isn't a totally insular world. Like, there is some sort of through line between the experiences I'm having around me and, you know, what the pop culture is, is sort of processing and so forth. So that's sort of my my starting point for relating to, to that character. Um, so, but, but it is interesting, you know, I mean, there's still, William Shatner's still around. Uh, George Takei seems like he's never been better. He's so, sort of this... this uh, heroic uh, ca- uh he was figure. announcing snl 40 yeah and there's a there's a, a solid documentary about about uh Takei, to be to which came out uh, recently and is worth checking out if you're interested with the in new that. with the new jj abrams um star trek uh, will be they they struggle with each one because it's so they did such a good job with the first one they really understood all the characters and who who they are and what their dynamics should be and they really cast them well you know zachary quinto as spock is perfectly cast um and and we will we will see uh what what whether it it, it continues to live to live long and and prosper i'm sure i'm sure it will so what's your pick for this week eric yeah let's move beyond star trek talk because we could debate that indefinitely uh i would say well there's a couple of interesting movies opening this week. There's a documentary called My Life According to Nicholas uh, Winding Refn, which is directed by Refn's wife, about uh, being behind the scenes of uh, Only God Forgives and, and just what a dud that wound up being. It's a very slight movie in terms of the caliber of filmmaking, but it's it's a very interesting sort of addendum to, to that story and how that movie went awry in the wake of uh, Refn becoming such a superstar with the success of Drive and... Um, just uh, really interesting to see in the later scenes how he processes the failure of the movie. You know, whether or not he was collaborating with his wife to capture certain moments or not, it still ends up feeling like a very exposed uh, portrait of, of what, it, what it's like to, to kind of 
be you know chewed up by the system so to speak yeah, and no, i'd like i'd like to see that it's very um, interesting uh, the documentary that i really admire that opens this weekend i highly recommend is the hunting ground um, another uh you know sort of expose of uh in the, of rape again i mean he uh, uh kirby dick the director and and the producer amy zeering have been collaborating they did the invisible war which is nominated for the oscar uh investigating rape in the military sexual assault and now it's campus right and after that movie came out these women around the country reached out to them and said tell our story tell tell people what's really going on on these campuses. And as they looked into it, rather shockingly, they figured out that institutional uh, secrecy and the need to uh, recruit uh, people in, in an almost business way was preventing uh, these colleges and universities from protecting their own students and parents need to know. What's I have to say, my, my feeling about this movie is actually feels similar to Manola Dargis, who called it this remarkable work of activism it's it's more flawed as a movie in some ways i mean it just to some degree it's it's not a movie that you can get excited about in terms of the kind of caliber of, of the filmmaking i mean it, it's well does I, it get its point across does it get its activism does it, does it, does, i think they have a mission which is a social action mission i mean there's no question about it and it's the url mission. You know, to to the that's all they're the thinking movie. about. They're thinking yeah. about how to get. You know, but there's there is art. There is um, yeah. The way the movie opens, where you're celebrating all these people's kids getting into college. You know, we've all been. You know, any of us, whether we're the student or the parent, has been through this process of it's just the joy of of getting that right. acceptance and letter. The dark side of, of yeah. all that setting in. I mean, I thought that um, to some degree, the Invisible War, his previous movie, was a little bit more focused in terms of the, you know, conveying the rage of its subjects, in that case, rape in the military. But um, this one is, what it does do is, like you said, it's, it's very good at conveying the kind of institutional failure of, of the university system to deal with this stuff because of, you know, they're worried about their business. It's still yeah. the strength of the corporation. It's yeah. still the idea that money talks. The football star gets to play football, whether multiple accusations of rape are outstanding or not. It's just, to me, it is still shocking that the women that, that are not being protected from serial predators on these campuses, places like Harvard, places like Berkeley, I, places run by women, presidents. Right. I was just shocked. Yeah, I really was. There are all kinds of different people complicit in this sort of thing. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty remarkable that how, how deep it goes. And I think that it, the movie seems well positioned to have an impact on, on these conversations. Well, they're going to show it. They're opening it. Radius is opening it now. Radius, which was celebrating its Oscar win for Citizen Four, is now uh, releasing this. And then it will show on CNN. So I am assuming it will reach many, many people. Right, and the great thing about it is that at the end of the movie, there really you you see that there are activists who are actually making uh, standing up and 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 putting a human face. That's what they did in both films: is put a human face on this issue that you just read about in the paper. It doesn't have the same impact. Right, absolutely. Now, and speaking of young people, there's another um, uh, kind of interesting uh, arrival this week, which is uh, the real Jack O'Connell performance worth talking about. Not uh, Angelina Jolie's movie released last fall, Unbroken, but 71, which is the first feature from Jan Demange, and it's just a really... Uh, British filmmaker. British filmmaker, excuse me. Very incredible uh, war drama, just uh, very well-produced, incredible scale, 
uh, very intense action scenes, and he's just phenomenal. And I mean, in the way it starts out is sort of this this lone trooper getting cut off from the rest of his battalion. Belfast. Belfast. North Belfast, Northern Ireland. That's right. Yeah. He's, a, he's a British During trooper in, 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 Nor- in Northern Ireland uh, and sort of getting into the wrong side of town. It kind of turns into more of like a Western showdown in the last act, which I thought was a really interesting turn. Um, but yeah, it's a first feature. It's just it's this guy has level. chops, and uh, what I found fascinating. I love the movie too. I, I absolutely uh, admire him. Um, what I and, and O'Connell is, is amazing in it, and very vulnerable. Uh, very, very. You're, the, what he's doing is he's he's giving you this immersive, experiential approach to this. It's not you're not seeing the big picture, and sometimes you get lost. It's like you're in a maze and you don't know where you are and who the players are. But because you're experiencing Experiencing it from the point of view of the character, it has an enormous power. But Jan Demange is one of these people when Hollywood gets its bead on a masculine action director who has chops like this, and he honed them, by the way, via eight years in uh, British television. So the guy had the chops, and they gave him a bigger budget than they ordinarily would have. He was backed. Uh, by Film 4, by Tessa Ross, by some of the best people who were working with him for years trying to find the right project. And when it finally came to him, because he had been trying to develop something about Algiers, um, and he's a big fan, by the way, of the Battle of Algiers, which you can see oh, as, as an influence on this. Um, he, 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 you know, he ran with the ball, uh, and now Hollywood's all over him, and he's going to be doing a movie with Megan Ellison and the producer of Birdman, John Lesher. So he's on his way. Yeah, exactly. It's like, what else is new? Somebody with a lot of talent working with Megan Ellison. I want to no, sound cynical about pick, it, but it's great. The, the, the trick was to pick the right project right. that would be true to him, that wouldn't be you know, him just selling out. Oh, for I sure. Think, I think he may have found Yeah, it. I mean, this is not a guy you want to see jumping on a superhero movie, even if he might do a good job with it. So in some ways, it's actually kind of inspiring to, to see somebody make that kind of decision. So well, who knows? Maybe we'll be talking about him more later this year when award season heats up. I highly doubt it will be done in time. Who knows? Anything's possible. We've got another week where we get further and further from Oscar season and plenty more to discuss. (laughs) I can't wait to not even make a reference to the Oscars next week. It's going to be next level. We are going to be able to continue this screen talk uh, discussion without having to talk about Oscars, and I look forward to it, Eric. In fact, you're going to be... But the calendar continues. We're going to go... You're going to South By. um, Ryan Latanzio from TOH is going to go, because I think of South By as a very young person's festival, actually. And then um, I will be back on the front lines in Cannes in May with you and uh, we will share some hideously constricted uh, housing (laughs) but we're lucky to be there as always yeah exactly it's all relative okay till next weekend bye
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.